press and media outlets are scrutinized as much as the subjects they cover, perhaps now more than ever. With the rise of social media and other forms of mass communications, these organizations are having to rethink the way that they operate, and just as importantly, the way that they tell the news. In a world where the term fake news is often thrown around, the landscape and public perception of journalism has completely changed. Veteran journalist, former LA Times editor-at-large, Pulitzer Prize honoree, and UCLA professor of public policy, Jim Newton, spoke to an audience of Ivy members to address the current media landscape in an age of fake news. It's an insider's look into an industry that has reached a critical point, and you can only hear it here on the Ivy Podcast. Uh, really, I'm most interested uh, this evening in talking about these issues with all of you, so I hope you'll view my remarks here as sort of preparatory to that, uh, really just planting a few ideas and then hoping that in conversation we can kind of work through some of them. All of this, this whole question of fake news is very complicated, it's, it's evolving uh, before our eyes, so I don't think it's easy to lock down what we mean by it. I thought, for again, for the purposes of sort of starting our conversation, I would begin with an attempt to define it, which I don't think we necessarily would all agree on. Thinking a little bit then about its impact, the kind of impact it's having on society and journalism, and then finally trying to at least take some kind of crack at what to do about it. But I must admit that's easier said than done. So let me take those in order. First of all, here's a recent development. There was a poll a couple months ago asked Americans to believe uh, the question whether they believe that what some of is what some of what is written about the White House is made up, not just incorrect, but made up. 46% of Americans answer that they believe that some of what they're reading about the White House is made up. To me, that's a freaking catastrophe uh, of public trust. The president's response was that he was gratified that he's getting through, that he's uh, people are beginning to understand what he's dealing with. So. I would start with the observation that my definition of fake news and that of the president's are apparently not the same. So let me start with a couple of things that I think, I hope that we would define fake news, sorry. First of all, it's not just that something is false. Let me give you a couple of examples of stories over in, during the Trump presidency. I'll just do two for the sake of brevity tonight, but things that were wrong that were reported out of the White House. John Kelly. Uh, who's the chief of staff to the president, he accused a congresswoman from Florida faking credit for federal funding for a, a federal facility in Florida. Uh, I think it was a, a, a Department of Justice facility. He was wrong about that. He refused to apologize for it. But I, I don't think there's any reason to believe that when he said that, that he thought he was saying something false or malicious. It may be, but to give him the benefit of the doubt, let's just assume that he was incorrect about that. Similarly, on the other side, some of you may remember that in the, in the very first day, in fact, I think it was the first or second day of the Trump presidency, there was a reporter from Time Magazine who reported that Trump had removed a bust of Martin Luther King from his office and replaced it with one of Churchill. That, too, was wrong. What happened there? The reporter, who was a, what we call a pool reporter, he was there on behalf of other reporters. He went to the White House, he looked around, or the Oval Office rather, he looked around, he didn't see the bust of Martin Luther King, which Obama had displayed uh, prominently. And so he came back out of the pool report, out of the, the office, was asked by the rest of the reporters, was it still there? And he said no. Well, it turns out he didn't, he didn't see it. It was behind a Secret Service uh, official, and he genuinely missed it. When he discovered that he was wrong, he apologized for it. Time Magazine put out a correction within about 15 minutes, and he personally responded to it. That's the first instance of the Trump presidency in which President Trump accused someone of fake news. He was wrong. 
And it's a bad mistake, and it's a mistake that fuels a certain preconception that a lot of people have about the president, which is that he's a racist. But is it fake news? Again, my argument would be no, and bear with me here for a minute, in the sense that I'm gonna try to, try to draw a distinction between things that are fake and things that are simply incorrect. One more aspect, sort of prefatory, satire. Is fake news satire? By some definitions, uh, you could say yes, in the sense that it's one of the things I'm going to argue that fake news is, is that it's not just mistaken, but it's deliberately mistaken. That's clearly the, the case with satire. Satire is meant to be provocative, meant to be incorrect. I'll give you an, one of the classic American examples of satire. You, you won't remember, you're all too young, even I'm too young, to remember the uh, famous War of the Worlds broadcast on the radio. The War of the Worlds broadcast was meant to convince people that there was an alien invasion going on in New Jersey. Why aliens would invade New Jersey is a was not answered. So it was false, it was deliberately false, it was meant to mislead people. Is that fake news? Well, again, I'm gonna carve out the purposes of this conversation, an exception that suggests that no, that that's not. And here's why, and this is now leading to more of a definition and less of an absence of a definition. It seems to me that fake news has to be false, it has to be deliberately false, and it has to be done with a specific intention in mind. That intention might be sheer profit, it might be just to make money off people and to mislead them, or I think more perniciously, more nefariously, it can be done to try to affect your politics try to affect the way you think about your political leadership. The War of the Worlds was meant to fool people, but it wasn't meant to cause them to vote Democratic or Republican. It wasn't meant to exploit them for money. It was meant to, to test people's sort of gullibility and the, and the, ability, and the strength of media to, to manipulate public opinion. So to my mind, that's satire, and that's different than fake news. What are some examples? If those are examples, then, not of fake news, of mistakes or of satire, what are some examples of real fake news? Uh, real fake news, that's a weird phrase. Okay, here's a couple out of the 2016-2017 cycle. Probably the biggest, most well-known of these is the uh, report that a pizza shop in Washington was running a child abuse uh, sex trafficking ring. This ring was said to be run by John Podesta and Hillary Clinton, among others, and as outlandish as that sounds, it was sufficiently convincing that it caused one guy to pick up a gun and shoot the place up uh, the next day or two days later. Another widely distributed piece of fake news during the election cycle was uh, Donald Trump's endorsement by the Pope. Nearly a million uh, readers on Facebook clicked on or I'm here to tell you the Pope has never endorsed the President of the United States, much less a non-Catholic president, which seems really outlandish when you think about it. Nevertheless, and I don't know, None of us can know. One of the things that's confusing about fake news is we don't really know whether people actually believed it or they just sent it on because they thought it was funny, but we know that a lot of people saw it. During the, the uh, hurricane in Houston, there was a widely circulated Facebook post that Black Lives Matter, the organization, was blocking hurricane relief to victims in Houston in order to punish white people. Again, among the most trafficked instances of fake news during the campaign, uh, 780,000 this was an allegation that uh, Hillary Clinton had personally sold guns to ISIS. Just <laughs> it assumes that she owns guns and that she sold them. Okay, whatever. Nevertheless, widely trafficked during the campaign. And finally, and I want to get back to this one in a minute. This is a little bit of a different flavor of the kind of fake that circulates these days. 
But soon after the, the terrible shooting in Las Vegas a few months ago, um, people circulated photographs, um, mostly on Twitter, although I'm sure on other social media that I'm just not connected to, in which there would be pictures of sort of minor celebrities, people you've never heard of, or at least I've never heard of, and it would say, this is my dad, or this is my brother, or this is my mom or sister. Can you please help me find them? No political content here whatsoever, purely done to draw clicks. And the idea of this is that people would be sympathetic, they would recirculate it as they did, and it generated traffic and therefore money for the people behind it. No, as I say, different from the others in, there's, in that there's not really a political content to ascribe to that, at least that I can figure out. Nevertheless, false, misleading, et cetera, meets our other definitions. So why do people do this? Well, for the people who did it after Las Vegas, I think they're just greedy little shitbags. There's just no, uh, there's no, as, as far as I can tell, again, no desire to affect your politics. They're just trying to generate clicks in such a way that makes them richer. The, um, the, but the bigger, the bigger issue that we're talking about is fake news that's intended to really affect politics. And the biggest of all, of course, is fake news intended to affect our politics that's sponsored by foreign states. It's illegal in this country for non-American entities to, to contribute to campaigns. And one of the ways that you can contribute to a campaign is by distributing news that affects people's politics. That is a prevalent and sort of dominant issue here. Okay, again, briefly, fake news, false, deliberate, intended to deceive, done for a purpose, either monetary or political. That's sort of my working premise. Examples, I've given you a few. Now, what about effects? What, are, what is the consequence of all this? If people just saw it, laughed it off, ignored it, then there'd be no real point in having this conversation. The fact is it does have danger and it does have real effect. I'll give you one example that's outside of the realm of American politics. You recall a couple of years ago, a couple hundred girls in Africa were kidnapped by Boko Haram, whisked away. This is in the closing years of the Obama administration. There was a fake news report within minutes of that kidnapping that it was made up, that there was no such thing, that the girls were all accounted for, that this was a hoax. The consequence of that is it was confusing, and it delayed an international response to the kidnapping. As any of you who've uh, done you know, any studying or even thinking about law enforcement know, that in something like a kidnapping, the delay of even a few minutes is very instrumental, is crucial. And it is no exaggeration to say, these girls, some of whom are still missing, that the chances of rescuing these girls was dramatically inhibited by a fake news report that caused questions about it in its immediate aftermath. So that's not about electing a Republican or a Democrat, that's saving girls from a life of hell uh, and done deliberately for the sake of sowing confusion. One of the effects is obviously to sow confusion. I would argue the biggest, most lasting social effect of, of fake news is to make us doubt everything. It's not to make you think necessarily that the Boko Haram thing is a hoax or that maybe the Pope really did endorse Donald Trump. It's to make you wonder whether you can believe in anything that you read. And to the extent that that, that, that idea begins to take hold, then what are you left with? What, if you really don't feel the confidence to believe that what you're reading in the news is at least well-intentioned, if not always perfect, then what you're left with is loyalty. You're left with trusting the people that you're already aligned with. And so if you're aligned with Donald Trump and he tells you that there's 
he didn't have anything to do with the Boko Haram thing, so I don't mean to do that. But he tells you that the, there's doubts about the kidnapping. Then you trust that because you don't believe that any less than you would believe what the New York Times said. If he tells you uh, that, uh, that it's a democratic policy to separate children uh, from their parents at the border, uh, that it's a democratic law, as he said the other day, if you don't believe anything else you read, there's no reason not to believe that. You're, what it does is it reduces truth to a belief in loyalty. The biggest beneficiaries of a belief in loyalty at the expense of truth are dictators and liars, because that's who, that's who the truth is meant to countermand. So if we are left with a society in which truth is vague and loyalty is strong, then we're left in a society in which dictators and liars have much more potency than they would otherwise. Quick uh, diversion, and then I want to get to remedies or things to think about about how to deal with all this. How does this work, and why is this new? Propaganda has been something that's been around for as long as humans have been around. And this is, in one sense, just propaganda. It's a, just a modern iteration of propaganda. But it's much more sophisticated. Every iteration of propaganda is a little bit more sophisticated than the last one. And this one is, uh, is monumentally more sophisticated than what preceded it. And how does it work? Here's the essence of advertising. Some of you I've talked to just in the reception here, some of you work in advertising. The essence of advertising is to, connect, is to connect an idea to a receptive listener, to get something to someone who's willing to listen and accept it. What social media does is create a whole new set of opportunities to do that. I'm gonna, I'll, these are silly examples, but uh, I'll, bear with me. It starts with elimination. Right? It starts with, if I'm a political advertiser and I want to persuade you to agree to vote for my candidate, I have to start by eliminating people who I know there's no chance of my reaching. So, I go to Facebook and I say, tell, I'll give this, as I say, I'm just making fun of myself here, but I'm a San Francisco Giants fan who drives an electric car and who buys occasional uh, albums of the Grateful Dead on my Amazon account. You can be pretty sure your money is wasted on me if you're a Ted Cruz operative, right? Um, similarly, if you imagine my polar opposite human, a Cowboys fan who drives a pickup truck and buys country music on his Amazon account, you can pretty much assure that Nancy Pelosi's not going to get his money, right? So right away, what, what these data systems do is eliminate for you wasted spending. They eliminate for you, don't, you know, well, you probably didn't need to be told this already, but if you're, Ted, if you're running Ted Cruz's campaign, I'd take the ad off the air in San Francisco because there's not going to, there's just not going to be much payoff, right? So there's, it starts with elimination. Then it moves to more nuanced kind of sorting. What do you do with a rural Pennsylvania voter who bought an Ayn Rand novel but shops at REI? Is that person available to you if you're a Democrat or a Republican? Maybe they give you some clues in either direction. So that's someone who's worth spending money on. What is Facebook? I mean, I'm, I'm picking on Facebook here. This is true of other social media too. What Facebook says to you is you tell us how much, how many, what kind of people you want to reach. You want to reach rural Pennsylvania voters who buy in Rand novels? We've got a million of them, because Facebook has more data than the fucking US government. I, I mean, uh, in fact, I was, I was actually with 
Bob, former FBI director James Comey, just last week, and he was talking about how envious the FBI is that the, of the data that Facebook has. Facebook knows these things about you because you've signed on and you've listened to this music or you've done whatever. To, and they, what they say to you if you're a political advertiser is you want uh, us to send out something to 200,000 rural Ayn Rand voters in Wisconsin? We'll do that, or Pennsylvania or whatever. You pay us and we send it. That's their business model. Now, that's, all that is is a more sophisticated business model than what everyone else has been trying to do forever. So there's nothing inherently wrong about that. It's just better than other people have been at it. The difficulty then arises is what happens when that person or that entity that's trying to influence those voters is not content to influence them by something real, but wants to lie to them about what's going on. So they, their response is not to send out a note to this Pennsylvania uh, REI member uh, that you know, that, that Hillary Clinton is endorsed by the Sierra Club or that Donald Trump is a supporter of handguns or whatever. It's to send a fake story to you that says a gun enthusiast has jumped out of the woods and saved the life of an REI member from an attacking grizzly bear and, 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 and therefore to persuade you emotionally that you should be supportive of that person's position, even though it's made up. That's fake news, and that's fake news that's actually, sadly, effective. People read it. Now, I, I brought with me, and I'll get to this in a minute, so many examples. One of the things is about fake news is that it just defies common sense sometimes that people believe it. Uh, here's my favorite that I did in research for this. Katy Perry reveals pension for cannibalism? Question mark. The question mark being key. Uh, so sometimes they send you stuff that's just absolutely ludicrous, but it's meant, I guess, people who are opposed to cannibalism will now not like Katy Perry, as opposed to all the people who do like cannibalism. Um, in any case, the, the fakeness of it is designed to appeal to you because of data that other people have collected about you. And they think it will reach you, and sometimes it does. And sometimes it does to the extent of influencing your vote or influencing who or what you support. So before... And I I promise I want to turn it to your questions here in just a moment. Let me talk about four ways that people can think about responding to this. The first is personal, and this is just consumer-based. When you see a story that says that Katy Perry is a cannibal, I file that away to doubt that, right? Uh, there's reason to believe that that might be cuckoo. Look for suspicious URLs. URLs that don't lead you back to a news source, to, but that lead you to some ambiguous site that you've never heard of that is suddenly professing to have important political information. So I would look for doubtful or, or, or suspicious URLs. Look for sources in pieces that you're reading. Are, are the sources named? Are they recognizable? Is it Bob Smith interviewed in a Wisconsin bar, or is it uh, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General of the United States? Most good news reporting these days will not only include some kind of identification, sometimes sources are anonymous, and there's, that's a whole other conversation which we can talk about, and they need to be. If a source is anonymous, usually a reputable news organization will tell you something about the source. So it might not say, Jeff Sessions, Attorney General of the United States, but it might say a high-ranking member of the Trump administration or a senior Justice Department official that would give you some reason to decide whether you believe that person or not. Maybe, maybe you believe that person less because of that, but at least it gives you information upon which to base it. 
Third, documents. One of the beautiful things about web and our new uh, evolving technologies is the ability to link to things. And so if, if someone is purporting to you to give you new information that's based on something, often they can link you to the actual document. And you can decide for yourself whether that document looks like a, a, a you know, a, a subpoena out of the Justice Department or a handwritten note on, in crayon out of a prison. And you might evaluate them differently, depending on which it was. If they don't link you to any documents, you might want to file that away too, because that might tell you something, again, just as a consumer. And then finally, I'm repeating myself now, but common sense. There are certain things that you just might want to ask yourself whether it's plausible. Is it really plausible that in the 2,000-year history of the church, Pope has finally decided to endorse the presidential election. And if that strikes you as implausible, then maybe you should start to doubt the rest of it. All right, so that's on a personal level. That's sort of what, what can each of us do to combat fake news. Oh, and by the way, let me add to that. To the extent that you have doubts about whether something is true, don't send it to other people. Don't retweet the thing that you think is not true. Because that's how stuff multiplies fast in this ecosystem. If you don't believe it or you have doubts about it, then research it more or keep it to yourself and let it die. Second, okay, so that's just about individual consumers. Second, and an obvious concern of mine, journalists. What should journalists be doing about this? This is a hard one because I think the temptation is to want to say this is, a, this is in the universe of journalism, right? This is in the transfer of information. That's what I do. That's what I've spent my whole life. I was the editor of my high school paper. I've been doing this since God was a boy. And, and it, I want able to step in and stop misinformation. Here's the problem with the role for journalists, is that journalists are the ones who are being accused of being the propagators of fake news. So when I tell you I'm not fake news, if you already think I am, I'm not going to convince you. So in an odd way, I think that journalists have a duty here, but it's actually not to intervene directly in this process. It's to keep telling the truth and to keep doing what they're supposed to be doing, not with favoritism to one side or another, but out of an abiding conviction that patience will prevail. Because I don't think journalists have the ability, frankly, to intervene in ways that will that actually stop this cycle on, in a 24-hour news cycle sort of way. Companies. What should companies be doing about this? This is probably the biggest area of debate in this question. Google. Twitter, Facebook, a million companies that you're more familiar with than I am, I'm sure, are the platforms by which this information is being disseminated. And so I think it's a fairly, it's a logical, understandable impulse that we say, well, then they should stop it. They're the ones spreading it. If the LA Times was spreading this kind of information, we would say the LA Times' responsibility is to stop spreading that kind of information. Here's and, and I sympathize with that. Uh, and, and I think that there are things that they could be doing, and, and in some cases are doing, to try to be more assertive. Here's the thing that's a little worrisome to me about that, is I don't trust the United States government to tell me what I'm not allowed to know. Right? One of the premises of the, not one of the premises, the premise of the First Amendment is that the government does not have the right to tell me what I can and cannot read about, learn about. Congress shall make no law impeding free speech. Well, if I don't trust the whose official role in electing and holding accountable, why should I trust an executive from Google to make that same decision? And I say this with no disrespect 
to anyone at Google. Uh, smart people there. Um, but the notion that we would entrust people to tell us what we are allowed and not allowed to read should be at least a little bit worrisome. And even if the goal is to eliminate um, fake news, just recognize that someone's going to have to make a choice about what's fake news. Um, what if it turned out that that pizza parlor in Washington was actually trafficking uh, children into slavery or whatever it was? Um, and a Google executive decided to eliminate that because it didn't sound plausible. A great harm would have been done. Now, it's not the case, so that none of that happened. Um, but I'm a little bit wary of solutions that say that censorship, as practiced by these companies, would be the right way through. Now, there are other possibilities that the companies could have, other ways they might influence it. They might flag pieces. They might warn you about pieces might highlight pieces that seem unusually credible. So there may be things short of censorship that they could do that would be helpful. And, and people are talking about that constructively, including with representatives of these companies. But before you make what I think is the easy call to say it's their responsibility to keep this stuff off the web, be careful what you wish for, I guess is what I would say there. And then finally is the government itself. Should the government have a role in patrolling fake news? Again. I will start with the constitutional question is, is the government allowed to do that? Is the government allowed, if I was, if I were, I was an editor at the Los Angeles Times for years, if I were to decide to publish a story that the government didn't like and the government stepped in and said, you're not allowed to publish that because we think it's fake, I, that would have a constitutional crisis over it. My wife's a First Amendment lawyer, her head would explode. Again, be careful what you wish for. The government does have the, an advantage over Google or Facebook or whatnot, and at least they are at least somewhat accountable to the public. But the First Amendment makes it very clear that we don't want the government doing that. So if there's a role for the government, what would it be? And by the way, I really invite your uh, thoughts on this, and I'm about to conclude. My question for you on, with respect to both the internet, the ISPs and the, the, the companies generally, the social media companies, and to the government, is if you want them to have a role, what does that look like? And how do you put boundaries on that in such a way that it protects the public without overly empowering people to censor your news? All right, so finally, uh, sort of in closing and in passing, this all comes at a really perilous juncture for the news business itself. The news business is in terrible danger, uh, economically and in terms of public trust. That's one of the reasons why I say I think the news business is not the right place to really respond forcefully to this. If that's the case, if, um, if, if this is not the right time, excuse me, for journalism to combat this evil, then what are the institutions that we still have sufficient faith in to begin to erode or to, to respond to this problem? couple that I would suggest, educational institutions, libraries, literacy programs, places that can teach people, or at least attempt to teach people, to think critically about the way they read, and that are not themselves the subject of this debate. Um, I don't think if you went to your public library and your librarian said, you know, the Katy Perry cannibalism thing, I don't really think that's true, that you would have the same response as if you went to a website that was promoting it, and they said, you know, it's true or it's not true, because a library is not in the fray in the same way that a news organization is. Here's the problem with that, and that, this is what I'll close with, is that route is long 
and requires patience. And there's not a whole lot of information that suggests that Americans are really up for things that are long and require patience right now. And so what I'm suggesting is, I think, inherently unsatisfying to most people because it says we've got a big problem, it's a big problem now, and I'm proposing that we probably can't really solve it for a long time. My only alternative to that, only to be more bleak than bleak, is to say that the short-term solutions may actually be more harmful than the problem itself. And so what, what I'm in search of, and what I uh, hope you're willing to contribute to and talk about now, is something that satisfies both those problems, something that moves as quickly as possible, addresses a problem that I think most of us would agree is real, that does not put it off into a future generation, but that also doesn't make more problems than, than it creates. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.